It's a big part of the reason why I love the internet, because it is so much more democratic. The gates have been opened, so not only is it so much easier to find information about, you know, suppliers, outlets, and to connect to consumers, but, you know, we can also, and this is what I love about social media, is that everyone now can express their idea of beauty, and the people vote with their attention, and then ultimately they vote with their money. And so I think that social media has really expanded the idea of beauty for the better. Veronica Webb is an international treasure and fashion legend. Not only was she the first black model to land a contract with a major cosmetics brand, she's a supermodel, an actress, and brilliant writer. And seriously, one of the most genius and inspirational people that I've ever met. In this week's episode, I had an opportunity to talk with her about all things fashion, her relationship with the late Azadine Alaya, life, aging, and the importance of diversity in the fashion industry. You can check out all of her fashion, beauty, and lifestyle content at webonthefly.com. I felt so inspired after our conversation, and I hope you will too. Thank you so much for coming on a fashion moment. Um, I absolutely love your work, your story, all of the amazing things uh, you're doing and just who you are as a person. Just so brilliant. So thank you for coming. You're so kind. Thank you. Uh, and I get inspired every time. So I'm really excited to, you know, bring the listeners on in to your journey. So, you know, just starting from the beginning, you grew up in Detroit. Um, you know, I mentioned all the time, there's so much creative talent coming um, from Detroit and, and still coming from Detroit. Um, what was it like growing up for you there? You know, you were, you were into all kinds of things, it seems like. Well, Detroit was an amazing place to grow up, one, because it was an economic powerhouse for Black Americans. It was one of the most fortunate places that people could land after the Great Migration. Um, my father came up from Columbus, Georgia, and had actually worked for Henry Ford in a Model A and a Model T factory, believe it or not. And my mother's family, well, my mother, her family didn't come. She was the only one who came. They migrated first from Louisville, Kentucky, then to Ohio. And then my mother, after serving in the Second World War, where she was among the first generation of commissioned Black female officers, and my mother retired with the rank of lieutenant colonel, she settled in Detroit after um, the Korean War, where she met my father. And, you know, people used to say when I was coming up that uh, Detroit was a poor man's paradise because there was work available in every imaginable kind of factory, whether it was, you know, Hitsville, the hit factory of Motown to, um, to the Stroh's Brewery to, you know, the big three auto plants to places that made potato chips. Um, and the factories were all glass. It was almost like a Mac store. Um, you know, so you, so you always saw people working, creating, 
and people who were both economically and socially mobile, which was an, which was an, a really empowering way for me to grow up. Um, and then my sisters went to CAS, um, and they were in they were in the same class. They were a couple years behind Diana Ross, who had oh, wow. recently graduated from from CAS. And then um, Tracy Reese is also very close in age to me, and she went to CAS, um, wow. where 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 my sisters went as well. Um, and you know, I had the incredible privilege of having a mother who had who was both very left brain and very right brain. And so my mother was an emergency room nurse. She ran the emergency room at, um, at, uh, at Detroit General Hospital, but she was also incredibly creative. So my mother like loved fashion and made all of our clothes. And we all sewed clothes, dyed our shoes and knitted and spun wool because my mother grew up, you know, she grew up on, on a farm during the depression. So she knew how to do everything. So, you know, it was not unusual that, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, we would do something like sew on a quilt, make a prom dress and then make soap Wow! Um, <laughs> from scratch. And it's funny, like, you know, when I read about Martha Stewart, actually, um, a lot of our up a lot of our upbringings are very similar because she talks about things that she did with her mother when she was a child, which are very similar to the things that I, that I did with my mother. So that really gave me a huge appreciation of quality of craftsmanship um, and also style. So by the time I got into the fashion world and, you know, I was lucky enough too that, you know, my mom, anytime we wanted to do something, she would say to us, okay, so how are you going to get started? And, you know, she was, and my parents were always ones for, you know, make a plan. Don't ask when will you or, 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 or why, you know, why can I, or why can I, your, your question is always, how do I get started? How do I take the next step? So, you know, it's kind of like something that Nipsey, um, Nipsey Hussle also said that was so great. Like, don't worry about building the wall, lay the bricks. Mm, wow. Wow. And then you'll, and then you'll end up with a wall. So for me, you know, my dream was to do something creative, to go to New York, um, to, and, and to live in a creative world. I didn't know exactly how that was going to be, but early on, um, you know, my parents told me, well, you know, if you can, if you can compete for scholarship money for these classes, you know, you're, you're certainly welcome to take as many as you want. And, um, from the time I was about 11 or 12, I was consistently winning scholarships either in, you know, to places like Parsons or Detroit community music school for dance or for the visual arts. So it gave me, it gave me a validation very early on that, you know, I could have a life as a creative person. Um, and then, you know, so many great people were from Detroit, like the model Monarchy, the model Danielle Luna, yes. who really is the first black supermodel who was on the cover of British Vogue in the 60s, who lived in Milan. Um, she was kind of the inspiration for the movie Mahogany. Oh, so, yes. you know, Mm-hmm. So all of that was like swirling around in my head. Um, 
And then when I came to New York, I got here on a scholarship to Parsons. And when I started modeling, you know, the first thing that my parents did and, you know, two really amazing things about them is one, you know, they had always had, um, you know, first they were in the army and then they worked for, um, the government. So, you know, my mother worked for the city of Detroit. My father worked for the U S government as an electrician in the tank division of Chrysler. So these are both people who both always had, you know, um, regular jobs with, with paychecks, um, who, you know, didn't have any entrepreneurial experience and who both wore a uniform to work every day of their lives, who allowed me one to experiment as much as I wanted to with fashion and gave me an incredible sense of style. And two, when, you know, I decided that I wanted to go into modeling and the chance came along. I was discovered while I was working at um, uh, a houseware store in Soho as a cashier. Um, my parents, first thing they said to me was, one, now you own your own business. Um, we're not going to be your partners in this. We were, we, we were going to be your partners in your education. But now that you're not going to school, you need to pay us back for the money that, you know, we forfeited because you're out of your second semester of school. And then the best business advice my mom ever gave me was she said, you're not going to have a pension and you don't know what your future is going to hold. So you need to start investing and set up a 401k. Wow. Which I did with my first paycheck when I was 19. Um, well, well, my first paycheck from modeling. And... Um, so that was kind of my foundation, you know, always like um, being creatively expressive, but keeping an eye on the bottom line. How did you find the scholarships? Um, were you like proactively asking? Were you researching? Like, how did you how did you find the money at such a young age? I know we have the Internet now. Well, you know, you need you need mentors and it's really important to have mentors. And that's why, you know, to this day, I continue to mentor young women, both educationally and in the fashion business, because, you know, if it weren't for teachers who really believed in me and teachers who understood as, as my great friend, um, Anna, um, as, as, oh, it's so hard for me to say her last name, but, but, but one of my great friends, Anna always says that wanting is power. And when you want something bad enough, it gives you the power to find it. And, you know, if, and also, um, education was so deeply prioritized in my family that that was my focus. And everything really is a question of focus. Because even if you can't hit the goal that you originally think that, you know, um, you're after, the thing that is right for you and the thing that, that, that is a fit for you will appear if you work in that direction. Mm. So how do you keep the distractions at bay? Because, you know, life can be crazy and, you know, you get the curveballs, or, you know, you get, you know, the health issue or you get the, the work issue. Like how do you stay focused in the midst of chaos? What are some of the things you do? I really have no idea. <laughs> Um, and that's, and <laughs> I know that question <laughs> came out of nowhere, right? <laughs> but I'm no, asking no, no. personally it's, it's, it's as well. It's not even that. It's not even that. But you know what? 
I think especially, especially like once, you know, our lives, our lives expand and they get even bigger and we add children and we add marriages and mortgages and, um, you know, all the things that come with adulting, there's so many distractions and there's so many things that, you know, take priority because, you know, family first. Yes. And I tend to be really hard on myself. So whenever I get off track, I'm like, I'm sure that, you know, I failed. The ship is going down. Yeah. I'm no longer a leader. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I completely um, align with that uh, quite often. So I'm like, you know what, what does Veronica do? What can I implement now? You know, especially having young children and, you know, I'm currently going through a divorce. So there's like a lot happening. So I'm like, okay, how can I stay focused on these areas? So, um, you know, just meditation and yoga, doing what I can. Those things help a lot. I think, you know, there's some basic things that we all need to do. Um, one of which is there's no pride in self-neglect because it, because often as mothers, you know, the message we get is, oh, you know, you know, you're such a good mom or you're such a good wife because you didn't take time to eat. You're such a good mom or you're such a good wife because you haven't had a shower in a week. Um, that's not healthy. And that's not a healthy example for your children. Um And I think, you know, the one thing is like, always try to conquer your basics, right? Like get up, make your bed, pick up after yourself, just do the basics where you feel decent. You don't have to go above and beyond, but, you know, just make sure that, you know, you, you, you do the basics. And then for me, I have to make lists. So I'll make one list that, you know, and it, and it says kids. And then the next list says, you know, money. And then break the money down into categories. So, you know, the money is uh, business, personal, household, right? And so then, you know, and then, and then break it down and, and post it help. And you can basically, you know, make the same kind of post-its um, with labels and you just pull them out every month. And then twice a month, like on the 1st and the 15th. I go through all the accounting and I try to put everything in different files so that, you know, taxes don't crash down on me so that, um, you know, everything kind of stays the same. And then half an hour a day. And even if it's like while I'm folding laundry, I'm stretching or while I'm watching TV, I'm stretching. Or if at night when I can't sleep, I'm stretching just try to get the tension out of your body because that's the killer, especially, you know, for African-Americans and um, Latin women, hypertension is so hard on us and it's the silent killer. And, you know, the number one cause of early mortality for women right now is heart attack because we have so much hypertension and the symptoms of heart attack in women aren't that studied. So just really, really, really try to make sure that you keep the tension out of your body and try to, you know, and one day a week, treat your body like a baby. So don't give yourself anything that you wouldn't give to a baby. Wow. Wow. Love that. Noted, noted. Podcasts are awesome. And I know you love them too, or you wouldn't be here right now. But have you ever thought about starting your own? Don't worry, you don't have to be a techie, but you do need a bit of guidance so you don't make costly mistakes. 
My name is Sunny, and I've been podcasting for a long time. I've launched more than 15 profitable podcasts, and I'm the founder of the Independent Podcast Network. My online course, How to Launch Your Profitable Podcast in 30 Days, gives you the keys to the five P's of podcasting, which is everything you need to launch and grow a successful podcast. You get unlimited access to more than 35 videos and dozens of handouts. And when you purchase my course, you're also supporting this awesome podcast because they're getting 50% of the money when you use their special link. How cool is that? Let me help you get started with your podcast. Go to podcastsareawesome.com slash fashion. That's podcastsareawesome.com slash fashion. You know what? I need an online course, Veronica. Like I, I, you know, like, I don't know if you offer like mentorship services, but like the young ladies, like we all need to to learn these things. Very important. But you know what? I'm going to take it back to the fashion. You know, you walked in Chanel. What was it like walking in your first Chanel show? For me, anytime, you know, I have a job, as much as I love it, it's equally as frightening and as nerve-wracking. And I want to tell you why. It's because I really care, you know, and I want things to go well. And there's always a chance that either it's going to turn out really great or there's going to be a complete disaster. I mean, I've been in Chanel shows where the glue on my shoes hadn't dried yet because the shoes had just been delivered from the factory and the heels came off on the runway and I fell oh my God. on Anna Wintour. <gasps> no! Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yes. Oh my goodness. And there was no one who was more perfect or more demanding of themselves than Carl Lagerfeld. So, you know, to make any kind of mistake in the court of King Carl was always mortifying. But, you know, for as larger than life and as monumental as he was, I mean, like sometimes Carl just seems so accomplished. And um, just his knowledge was so vast, you almost need to go see a shrink afterwards because you felt so inferior. He was always the most kind, encouraging person. He really was. Wow. Well, you know, uh, some models are, you know, or people sometimes think that models are catty. Um, like, were there other models that sort of became your friends and colleagues over the years? Like, was there a sisterhood that you created among certain models? Like, how did that go for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, <laughs> in any job, in any job where people are compared to one another on things that they don't necessarily have that much control over. Like there's no way I can make my legs longer or, you know, um, my skin another color or, um, you know, there's just, a, you know, a million arbitrary things that a client is looking for. And when you, and when people start comparing themselves to one another, that brings out the worst yeah. in people and always does. So, you know, there's there's an element of that. And then also because, you know, modeling is based on youth and most careers are very, very short. Like the average career is three to five years and most people don't really get rich from modeling. Like maybe they can pay down some of their debts and they meet some people and they have, you know, a, a, a nice start in life and they have a few pictures to take with them. 
but most people don't get rich from modeling. Wow. Um, and so because it's so short and the turnover so high and someone who looks like you is usually coming in behind you to replace you. Yes. It can bring out the worst in people. On the other hand, you know, you have this incredible group of women from all over the world with, you know, backgrounds that you, you know, have never even heard about or learned about names. You can't even pronounce who come from places that you can't even visualize (laughs) on the map whose lives are so rich and so varied and who are so energetic and creative and love fashion so much, you know, that you get this really interesting tribe of friends who um, open the world up to you and who like, you know, Marpessa Hennick, I'm friends with till this day, Carla Rooney, um, uh, Cara Young, Karen Alexander, um, yes. Linda Spearing. Uh, wow. I mean, Iman, Naomi, I could go of on and course. on. So, you know, and that's, you know, and that's a very rich, special part of my life that because it's so rarefied, we only shared as a group of models. So it's, it's a little, so it's like in a way your family where, you know, I always say that, you know, my sisters now are the only ones among my friends who, you know, uh, because, you know, I, I moved away from Detroit and I don't have any friends from Detroit except for one who, who lives here. But, you know, it's kind of like only my sisters remembered the times when both my parents are alive and all my aunts and uncles were alive and all the different places that we went together, you know, and increasingly now, you know, my group of models, you know, we're the ones, you know, only among us do we remember the times when Azadine was alive and Carl was alive and Patrick Kelly was alive. Oh, Patrick, and, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, what an icon. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's, it's like a little family for sure. I love it. And you mentioned um, Azadine Alaya, like what, what were some of the key lessons that you learned from him and, and just like life in Paris? I mean, he, you know, you lived with him and, and he taught you so much. What was that experience? Like, what do you, what do you remember about him? Well, I remember everything about him. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about Azadine. He was one of the kindest people that I ever met. One of the most empathetic people I ever met. Um, and Azadine and his partner, Christoph, who they met on the first day of, Azadine met his partner, Christoph, on his first day of art school wow. when he was 19 years old. Wow. And, you know, they stayed together for 50-something years. And I still talk to Christoph on Sundays because um, I consider him to be really like a father figure in my life. But one of the biggest things that Azadine taught me um, and it echoes very much something that my mother taught me was learn how to learn because the world is changing faster and faster and faster. Wow. Wow. As you know, he was incredibly generous and always had people at his table and we'd never let someone who he cared about go hungry. And, you know, he told me the story of when he was a kid, there was a neighbor who had lost his wife and he couldn't take care of the daughter that he had. And so one day he was sitting at the dinner table. He was about five or six years old and his mother sat the girl down next to his, his grandmother sat, sat the little girl down next to him 
and took half the food off of Vazadine's plate and gave it to her because they were the two smallest children. Wow. wow. And he got really upset and he threw a fit. And his grandmother took his food away and she said, this could easily be you one day with no food and no one to give you any food. Wow. And, you know, he never forgot that, he told me. And um, that girl who grew up with him became like a sister and she, and stayed with his mother. She never married and, and stayed with Azadine's mother and his, and his grandmother till the very, very, very end of their lives. Wow. Wow. Oh, I have chills. That's amazing. So, you know, really is that, you know, when you have good fortune, share it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Take care. Yep. Take care of the people who you love. I love it. I love it. Uh, so, you know, we got to talk about the runway. We got to talk about runway. How did you, okay. how, did, how did you refine your walk? Cause you have a walk, you know, like you have a walk that is like specific to you. Was it just something that came naturally? Did you have a coach? Did you practice? Well, I took ballet when I was young. I think dance is one of the most, dance or athletics is one of the most important things that you can do for any young person because it really sets the framework of your body for the rest of your life. I was hopeless at walking in high heels in the beginning. And, you know, and if you want to be good at anything, you have to practice it and you have to be able, you know, my sister's a doctor, right? So like, um, when she was an intern and she would be on for 36 hours and then off for 18 hours and on for 36 hours and then off for 24 hours and, you know, woken up at all times of the day or night to perform all types of procedures. What I kind of got from her there and the discipline that I took from ballet is that you have to continue to practice things even when you're uncomfortable or it's inconvenient. And if you want to be a good runway model or a good model for that, you know, for that matter, you need to learn how to do everything you need to do in high heels. You need to learn how to walk, run, jump, shop, travel, get in and out of a car in high heels. You know, and as a young girl, of course, that's not um, a, a skill that you've practiced for a long time, obviously, because, you know, you're not wearing high heels on the monkey bars. Um <laughs> Were you running in high heels, Veronica? Were you were you like running around the track or the neighborhood in the heels? <laughs> you know, you have to like like point shoes. Uh-huh. You have you have to build you have to build up a tolerance. So you know, I would take one day a week when I was still learning how you know how to wear high heels and how to model, and I would do. You know, not run around the track, obviously not, because that's <laughs> stupid. You know, you you, yeah. you, you you ruin your feet and kill your kill your back. But um, I would take one day a week where I would do all my errands and heels. Love it. Love it. Well, you were the first Black supermodel, like, model period to land an exclusive contract with a major cosmetics company. So what was that process like for you? And... You know, like what ran through your mind when you saw actually saw the the ad campaign? Like, how did how did that happen? Well, everything takes a village, right? So, one of the things was that 
um, you know, like I said, I grew up in Detroit, which was this real economic powerhouse for African-Americans and going back to Madam C.J. Walker and then through the time of Revlon as consumers, you know, we had continued to build our economic power and, you know, it never would have happened without one amazing people in the fashion industry who helped me and believed in me, like Elizabeth Salzman, who's a stylist and an editor, the support of people like Anna Winter and Franca Sidzani publishing my pictures in Vogue, and then help from designers like Azadina Laya and Karl Lagerfeld and Isaac Mizrahi. And then, you know, I always have to give a shout out to the most important person who made this happen, which is a woman named Jerry Bacchus Glover, who's a cosmetic chemist. And, you know, Jerry is a black woman, and I think one of the very first people to really have a really high position at a corporate level at a mainstream company where she made color style happen. And that was really her baby from soup to nuts. So it was amazing when it happened. I mean, it, one, it was a huge responsibility because, you know, being from a generation, a family who has um, a lot of firsts, you know, my mother being uh, one of the first commissioned black officers in the U.S. Army. Um, my sister is the first black female oncologist in the state of Michigan. Um, my sister, Teresa, is among the first teachers to help design math curriculums for Title I schools. So, you know, I really understood how important it is to be, you know, one, to get your foot in the door, but then two, you know, you have to pave the way and create opportunity. And, you know, it was amazing to have that ad, but at the same time, on, on that first set, there were no people of color. The way they made me look was the, the I hated my hair. I hated my makeup. It was awful. And, you know, I really had to stick my neck out and make a huge fuss and say, hey, you know, um, nothing about this looks right. Nothing about this is right. We need to get, you know, we, we, we need to get the right people who are um, eth both ethnically sensitive and how can I put this, who, who, you know, who are both um, ethnically sensitive and also deeply connected to um, the aesthetics and the beauty of our community. And I was able to bring in Sam Fine and Oscar oh, James. Oh, wonderful. Oh, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, and if you look at, and if you look at the first ads and then if you look at the later ads that, that, that um, Sam and Oscar did, it's night and day. But what was really nice was then, you know, it started to create opportunity all up and down the supply chain. So, you know, I would ask, well, you know, are you dealing with like um, African-American trucking companies? Are you dealing with African-American suppliers on um, the chemical side? Could we get a caterer? Could we get, um, you know, a studio assistant? Wow. It just trickles down. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, you know, you were there, you know, in the earlier phases of that change. Like, what are your thoughts now 
on the diversity in the industry and, and the, the inroads that are being made today? It's a big part of the reason why I love the internet, because it is so much more democratic. The gates have been opened. So not only is it so much easier to find information about, you know, suppliers, outlets, and to connect to consumers, but, you know, we can also, and this is what I love about social media, is that everyone now can express their idea of beauty and the people vote with their attention. And then ultimately they vote with their money. And so I think that social media has really expanded the idea of beauty for the better. I think that, you know, we're seeing so many categories of beauty for us by us. There's a great organization where I was one of the founding members called 25 Black Women in Beauty. It's BWB underscore 25. And if you have any questions about the beauty industry, getting into the beauty industry, um, if you're looking to be mentored or, you know, would like to expose your product or idea to a forum of really highly competent women in the cosmetics industry, um, look it up. So, you know, that was something back in the day that was unheard of, which now, you know, we have an international network where, where we can tap into it at the end of our fingertips. Oh, it's wild. It's wild. And you just recently joined um, a board as well, right? The Black Black and Fashion Black and Fashion Council started by the lovely, amazing Lindsay Peoples Wagner, who was the youngest editor-in-chief ever at Condé Nast. She was the editor of Teen Vogue after Elaine Welteros left. Yes. She's now on the talk, the fabulous Elaine Welteros. Fabulous. We love Elaine. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Lindsay is now at the cut. But in response to a lot of the things that happened last summer and the incredible opening and awakening um, of the beauty and fashion industry to create more opportunity. Uh, the Black and Fashion Council was, was created as a mentoring organization, one, to prepare people for the opportunities that had now presented themselves. Because, you know, if you don't, if you don't have someone who can explain to you what you need to do in order to get your, to, to have, to present your business at an entry level, to somewhere in mass market or prestige market, it can sink your business. Wow. Um, and if you have an idea and you don't necessarily know how to get the education or you don't know that hiring is coming up in a certain company because passion is, you know, passion is very much a tribe. It's like, like Wall Street. You know, it's very much word of mouth. If somebody doesn't tell you or recommend you for these jobs that are coming up, you know, you may not necessarily know. So Black and Fashion Council exists for that. And then, on the, and then on the other hand, you know, education goes both ways. Like, I'm never angry when someone says something that may be off color or doesn't sound right if they don't understand, if no one ever told them that mm. that's not right. Yeah. Because... You know, I've, I've, I've put my foot in my mouth and stuff and shit a million times, you know, coming from the east side of Detroit and being exposed to a world audience and being exposed to all kinds of different races, religions, cultures, 
orientations, preferences, lots of things where, you know, I just, I mean, some, something as simple as like even, you know, I didn't know that you're not supposed to shake a rabbi's hand. Oh, yeah. Wow. There's so right? much. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, it's, and so there's just, there's so many things that, you know, people don't know on both sides. So um, one of the great things that Black and Fashion Council is doing is, you know, we've partnered with the human rights organization in order for companies to be able to have listening sessions in order for people who are in HR who may have not necessarily have grown up with somebody who's, you know, black or Indian or Asian or Latin or the other way around, you know, may not have a lot of exposure to white people to be able to sit down and talk to someone and say, Hey, I'm coming up against this and I don't know why, what should we do in our country, our, our company? Love that. To rectify this or what, or, you know, what can I do as an individual in order to rectify this? And then, you know, treating people as equals from the day that they come in. And if you have questions, you have questions, you know, so it's, so it's, it's kind of like removing the gotcha politics. Mm, Yes. Yes. Wow. That's so that's one of, that's one of the big things that the black and fashion council is doing and I'm really incredibly proud of what um, Lindsay People Wagner and Sandrine Charles, her partner who runs a PR firm by the same name, Sandrine Charles, have been able to do. Oh, that's beautiful. In, in, in just a year, there's over 150 major brands that have signed on. Amazing. We had to do something, you know, just as, as a fashion community, something had to be done. And obviously something had to be done broader, you know, more broadly um, as it relates to who we are as a nation. So I'm glad that, you know, there's so many changes and, and shifts happening. It's, it's really great for our future, I think. And I just have to give a great, I have to give a shout out to um, Sandra Richards over at Morgan Stanley, who has been an incredible supporter of us at Black and Fashion Council. Amazing. Wow. All right. That's great. That is amazing. Love it. Love it. Love it. So, you know, I have to uh, get into Web on the Fly. What is Web on the Fly? And what was your inspiration to launch Web on the Fly? Web on the Fly is my blog. It is a pro-aging blog. And my motto is own your, own your age, own your beauty, own your power. And I started it when I turned 50 because in six years ago, the conversation about diversity isn't what it is now. And the conversation about age, which is really just beginning in fashion and also more broadly in pop culture, is only beginning now. I think that, um, you know, women are seen as invisible or interchangeable um, once we get over 40. I think we live in a culture that, you know, values us really only as sexualized beings. Um, and there's very little information about women as we age, both reproductively and psychologically. And it's and it goes across the board. I mean, even nurses who 
you know, I have some of the best doctors in the world and, you know, I, I have, I have conversations with the nurses and they tell me that when they went through menopause, they were completely shocked. No one talked about it in medical school. Their mothers didn't talk to them about it and they're taken by surprise. And it's in many ways seen as a taboo subject where women feel that, you know, once they start going through menopause, they don't want to talk about it. It's a loss of power. Whereas, you know, I think it's a rite of passage that frees us up and gives us a lot more time for ourselves and a lot more wisdom because, you know, your body has come in many ways full circle. Wow. I love that. And I think it's really important as women that, you know, we stop thinking that our most valuable asset is youth. Because if you're always chasing something that you can never get more of and you can't make more of it, you're like a serpent swallowing its tail. Um, Whereas our strength and our wisdom should be our most valuable asset. And the thing that, you know, that we're always working toward and chasing should be strength. Wow. I, I love that. And, and through strength comes wisdom and wisdom is ultimately your power. So, you know, as someone who, you know, like as women, like, you know, getting all of the, you know, I'm only 35. So I'm like kind of at that mm-hmm. mid, like I'm approaching <laughs> the 40, but, you know, I've been reading a lot and just sort of, you know, being in, in rooms, you know, with, with different moms and, and, and folks who are in their forties and fifties. And this comes up quite a bit. What has worked for you just in terms of not allowing society's sort of messaging to permeate your space? Because, you know, there's so, so much that we're, we're, taking in, whether you're at work, whether you're at home, even, um, you know, so many changes and, and to grab a hold of that is really tough. You know, you have all of these ads, you know, saying like, you know, fountain of youth here, you know, anti-aging here. What is sort of your approach to, to, you know, be strong? See, I'm not, I'm, well, one, I'm not anti-aging, I'm pro-aging because, if I'm not aging, I'm not growing. Love that. Wow. So I want to make sure that, you know, I nourish myself in every way possible so that I can grow. So that means, you know, building muscle, building aerobic capacity and building knowledge and building knowledge about my own health. Um, you know, my journey in menopause has been um, really interesting um you know for some people like it just kind of you know from one day to the next they don't really feel that much different for me I you know I had like um a lot of severe symptoms like you know brain fog night sweats um tingling on the back of my hand and so this was all things that you know I had to find out for myself um because you don't necessarily go through menopause at the same time as your mother or your sister's and it's different for everyone. So is it sort of like preg- pregnancy in a way, like where, you know, yes. you can get the most random, like someone's like, oh, I got a wart here. Or, you know, I I got diastasis recti and, you know, like just mm-hmm. random, you know, 
obviously like my feet grew like two sizes, but you know, other women that I know like that didn't happen to them. So is it kind of like that in a way? Yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And no one talks about it. I'm like, why don't more people talk about these things that happen to women just in different phases of their lives? Like I, I, I think that if the shame, you know, were to be removed, like we could, we could be so much more empowered, you know, as we, as we learn. Like, like, like when you think about like every third commercial is for, you know, Viagra and, you know, you've got like U.S. senators advertising it where I don't think we've heard a single, you know, I, I, we don't see any commercials for anything that has to do with menopause and we don't see, you know, and, and we certainly don't see, I think a lot of prominent women really talking about it in an open way. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a taboo I really want to break. The only thing I I would, I probably see often are like ads for poise, but that's like it, you know, just in terms Mm -hmm. of like prominent Mm -hmm. figures or, you know, um, TV ads or, you know, just, I see a lot of poise ads, but that's about it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's wild. Well, we still have a ways to go, but I absolutely love Web on the Fly. Where can people go to check out your blog? Well, you can always find me on Instagram, which is at Veronica Webb. And my blog is Web on the Fly, W-E-B-B, like my last name, webonthefly.com. You know, what we talk about, I, I talk about so much more. Um, you know, I interview all kinds of interesting people. Um, I share my, my knowledge of fashion and building wardrobes and um, clean beauty and um, fancy beauty and, uh, you know, different kinds and, and, and different kinds of exercise. But, you know, mostly what, what I really care about is creating a place where people can go to find sustainable resources for their health and beauty. Love that. Love that. And, you know, I know you've mentioned um, a few um, just during our conversation, but what is or what would you say is the most significant lesson that you've learned over the course of your life and career? Something that is really salient and and stands out for you. You know, the other day I I had an an 82-year-old Uber driver and I got in the car and and I said to him, how you doing today? And he said, I've never had a bad day. Wow. And I said, I got like tears in my eyes. And I said, thank you for telling me that. And then he said, well, you know, I would never want you or anybody else to ever have a bad day. Wow. Wow. Every day is a good day every day. Right. Right. Wow. And I had a rough one today, Veronica. I tell you, it was trying, but (laughs) it's still a good day because we're above ground and we have an opportunity to experience this amazing thing called life. I love it. I love it. It's true. And like, you know, and then another one of my favorite quotes too comes from Tupac where he, you know, he was saying, I forget who it was. He was saying it to me. He said, you know what? I got the same 24 hours you got, man. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I love it. So, you know, I have to ask, we ask all of our guests, 
this the same we close out with the same question on the show what is your favorite fashion moment of all time just one just one of your favorites it doesn't have to be the favorite but one of your favorites because i know you have several it can be personal professional or both and why i think it's probably the first fashion moment i ever remember and i was three years old and my mother made me a cotton romper and it was the Mon- It was the Friday that school came. It was it was the Friday that school was going to be out. It was light blue with white bunnies and orange and hood that were holding orange carrots. And it had two big pearl buttons on the front, you know. And I was so little that like the top of my thighs were still like chunky and fat. You know how <laughs> so big have fat chunky thighs. <laughs> I love it. And I went outside on, on, on my front lawn in my romper. And I stood there and I felt like on, on my green grass and I felt like I owned the world. Oh, that is so magical. That is so magical. Like you're early, three years old. Three years old. Yeah, I, I can see it. I can see the two pigtails that came to my shoulders. I can I can see uh, I can see the white yarn ribbons that that were on the end of, <laughs> that were on the end of my pigtails. I can see it now. I can see it now, and I had it all. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Veronica, for being on the show. It is truly, truly an honor to be able to have this conversation with you. And obviously you're welcome back anytime. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I wish you luck with everything. Thanks so much for joining me for this week of a fashion moment. If you like what you hear, we'd love for you to join our community of listeners and spread the word about the show. We also want to hear from you. Share your favorite fashion moments and dream guests with us by sending an audio clip or email to a fashion moment podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tag us on Instagram at a fashion moment and you could be featured on next week's episode. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review and let us know what you think. Until then, see you next time for another fashion moment. Podcast production by Rebecca Rashid and John Taylor Williams. Digital media production by Megan Porras. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Patrick Patrickios for their song, Hot Coffee.